This is hell. Live from Chicago, where the city will be hosting this August Democratic National Convention. And only a month earlier in July, our neighbor to the north, Milwaukee, will be hosting the Republican National Convention. And you know if those two conventions are happening that close to one another, within 90 miles of one another, there will be no question this summer that both the people in Chicago and Milwaukee will finally fully be aware that this is hell. Yes, I've spoken with, and one of our producers, Chris Kulfan, has spoken with many people who are going to be protesting this summer's DNC here in Chicago come mid-August. In fact, I've talked to people in Milwaukee who are coming down for the DNC protests the month after the RNC actions up in their own hometown. Problem with that planning for Milwaukeeans is those protests in Milwaukee may still be The protesters may still be completely worn out by what might happen at the RNC in Milwaukee in mid-July. And what might happen is downright frightening. First, there's Wisconsin being a hotbed for far-right white supremacist fascists. That's not good. Second, the police have already revealed how friendly they are to such violent, deadly fascists back in 2020 in Kenosha with the shooting of three protesters and the killing of one by mass shooter Kyle Rittenhouse during the protests over the police murder of George Floyd. A shooting that Rittenhouse walked away from, still fully armed, without being stopped by police whom he strolled right by. Third, while Milwaukee instituted police reforms following the cop killing of George Floyd, those reforms have been waived, put on pause during the days of the upcoming convention. Why would they waive those rules? Well, that brings us to point number four of why the protests in Milwaukee may get far worse, far more violent than the DNC here in Chicago, which is... The same reasons cops won't be wearing the police body cameras that were worn by or won by citizens and community organizations hard work. They will not be wearing those body cams because the notoriously violent and racist suburban cops, who the city says are needed to assist Milwaukee's police during the convention, are refusing to wear body cams. And if and they don't want Milwaukee police to wear them either, because who knows what kind of police violence they may catch racist suburban cops committing in an urban setting where they are like frightened fish out of water. In a few minutes, we will learn about the frightening prospect of what the RNC in Milwaukee will turn into when we speak with historian and writer Rachel Ida Buff, who posted the Boston Review article, The Right Comes for Milwaukee, Why Did the Blue City Agree to Host the Republican National Convention? and to suspend hard-won police reform for its duration. Rachel is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where her teaching interests include comparative ethnic studies and immigration history. Like her teaching, Rachel's uh, research interests are also in immigration and immigrant rights, as well as transnational cultural politics of the Cold War in diasporic cultural citizenship. Rachel is coordinator of the Comparative Ethnic Studies Program, interim editor at Voces de la Frontera, and an editorial board member on the Nation of Nations series from New York University Press. Her 2020 book, 
A is for Asylum, Works for People on the Move, Words for People on the Move, was published by Fordham University Press. In it, Rachel attempts to sort the meanings and historical genealogies of the inflated and sometimes incendiary contemporary terms used to describe migrants. She is also the author of Against the Deportation Terror, Organizing for Immigrant Rights in the 20th Century, and an edited, edited, edited volume, Immigrant Rights in the Shadows of Citizenship, as well as Immigration in the Political Economy of Home, Caribbean Brooklyn and American Indian Minneapolis, 1945 to 1980. Rachel has been the faculty editor for the American Association of University Professors Journal of Academic Freedom. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel Ida tweets rachel ida tweets you can find more of her writing including her poetry at atlas of a difficult.wordpress.com producing is will ippen will how are you anything new in your world uh same old boring uh life uh my uh pinch nerve is getting worse so that's neat pinch nerve in your uh it's kind of starts in my in the right side of my neck through my shoulder and then Sweet. I have numb fingertips. So oh, that's, that's fantastic, yeah. man. That's really great. Cool. I know. So if I really want to like feel texture, I got to use my non-dominant hand. So Do you cool. have one of those weird thumping mas- massagers, those guns? No, but I think I need one really yeah. badly. Um, I got one for Christmas and it's been really helping out my neck. Oh, I bet. I bet. Now I have a PT assessment. Uh, oh, you do? Sometime. Yeah, we're working on scheduling it, but... Yeah, Atletico does free assessments. Oh, so, do they yeah. really? Yep. Yeah, because my uh, doctor told me that if I could do uh, PT over at Atletico, he would sign off on that and that my insurance would cover it, which I had no idea. Oh, yeah, it's case. great. Yeah. So yesterday we finally got our plumber to fix the bathroom sink after we figured out that we did not have the skills to fix it ourselves. But as our home has never been in perfect working condition <laughs> during the entire time we have lived in the neighborhood, I knew we were jinxed, and sure enough, As it did during our nearly 10 straight days of sub-zero Fahrenheit weather, our heat went out again. And for you Celsius-loving commies out there, zero Fahrenheit is nearly 18 below zero Celsius. Oh, the glamorous lifestyle lived by your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host. That's me, Chuck Mertz. Yes, this is hell is completely listener supported, which is a noble business model for sure. But I can tell you from my home crumbling around me, it's not a successful one. But more important than my glamorous lifestyle of failed plumbing and heating in the dead of winter, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell, which you get first crack at as a Patreon subscriber, is from listener Dan K, who posted his suggestion at the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. This week's question from hell is... How long can this go on? <laughs> How long can this oh, go man. on? I know. It's, uh, it's already filled with lots of great answers so far. I but... wake up wondering that every single morning, <laughs> I think. How long can this go on? Yeah. Still being awake. Can I just go back to sleep? Groundhog day of late capitalism and climate <laughs> catastrophe. Yes, exactly. So, uh, and I want to apologize to everybody. I posted the question from hell a little bit late this week. 
just completely spaced on Sunday, so my apologies. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever. This is hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can give us your answer to this week's question from hell, and if you do, we will read it on air. All you have to do is post your answer under the ans- announcement of this week's question at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, which is not as throttled by Facebook as our regular pages or you can direct message it to us via x at this is hell radio which is also heavily throttled as we have over almost 9,000 followers yet only a few hundred can see our actual posts or you can leave your answer in our discord community or on our patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell and those are the best way to stay on top of what's happening on the show. Uh, check out our work on Patreon. Check out our stuff at Discord. Check out our stuff at Welcome to the Hellhole group page because we've been the victims of corporate cancel culture since the show began long before they were calling anything cancel culture. By the way, we got an email from a recent question from Hell winner, Jamie K. The question from Hell that Jamie K. won was, Now that Henry Kissinger is dead, who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep Henry company in hell? And the next war criminal Jamie wants to see rotting in hell with Hammer and Hank is Andy Hildebrand, inventor of auto-tune. Although Jamie added, I guess that's more a crime against humanity. Jamie writes that for winning the question from hell back in December, he would like a large size This Is Hell t-shirt. But there's some bad news, Jamie tells us. I hate to mention it, but I never did get a prize for my last question from hell winning answer. But I don't even remember when or what it was, and I'll be happy just to get a t-shirt. Plus, I used to have a weird address that led to lots of lost mail. I really deeply appreciate and I'm truly grateful for your thoughtful and thought-provoking interviews and the work that you and the team put into producing the show. I also have a suggestion, a guest suggestion. Astra Taylor, who was on the show a couple times back in 2019, has a book out recently called The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart, published by House of Anansi. I listened to the lectures that the book was written for, and I'd love to hear you interview her about it. I'd especially love to hear her response to questions about how insecurity can turn to fear and in turn lead to political radicalization and how it seems to be used that way much more successfully by the right than by the left, at least in the current political context. Are political responses to insecurity and fear, sticking fear-based politics as the right does, or stoking, or trying to build meaningful security as we might hope for from the left, a clue to the real politics of supposedly left politicians, for example, the Democratic Party in the US, Labour in the UK, or the New Democratic Party in Canada? None of them are pro-peace, for example, all support NATO and the arms industry, not to mention various wars and genocides. Wishing you peace and prosperity for the new year, or at least implacable equanimity and raucous good humor. Jamie adds in a follow-up email, I'd argue that the reward of learning and expanding one's understanding of the world is a great counterweight to the horrors that we are actually learning about through the show and the psychic pain of all that cognitive dissonance and emotional trauma by proxy. Hugs, Jamie. Thank you for the guest suggestion, Jamie. Yes, we should get Astra back on the show, and you can hear our 2009 interviews with her for free right now by searching on her name 
astrataylor at thisishell.com. But don't do it now. Hang out and listen to our interview with Rachel. And we should also probably share an interview we did with her back in the aughts on Patreon at some point in the future. And thanks for the very kind words, Jamie, and your years of listening and support for the show. If anyone has either won a question from hell and has yet to receive their prize or has ordered something from our merch and has not received their merch, please email me at chuck at Our merch people have recently moved to a distant location and some merch deliveries may have been missing during all the chaos of moving all their stuff and ours from southern Indiana to northern Michigan. Coming up, the RNC is coming to Milwaukee, which is frightening. We'll, we'll share answers to this week's question from hell as they are posted at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. We will have this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi and we'll tell you who we have confirmed as our final guest on this week's show. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell and I have a sneaking suspicion that we will learn that lesson once again this July when the Republican National Convention comes to Milwaukee and city and suburban cops start cracking heads over nonviolent crimes like painting graffiti, putting up posters or vandalizing property, maybe protesting without a permit. You want to see property having more uh, rights than p- people? Just go to either major political party's convention and watch how protesters are only allowed to engage in free speech, expression and assembly in caged areas. What's worse is, in Milwaukee, the upcoming convention could be dangerous, even violent, if not deadly. Here to help us be prepared for the hell that Milwaukee will be facing in mid-July and with the RNC and maybe what we'll be facing with in, here in Chicago in mid-August with the DNC. Historian and writer Rachel Ida Buff posted the Boston Review article, The Right Comes to Milwaukee, Why Did the Blue City Agree to Host the Republican National Convention and to dis- Suspend a Hard-Won Police Reform for its duration. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rachel. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here this morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is really a great article. And I know I might have some, you know, Great Lakes locality bias here, but I really found this to be fascinating. You write that this summer, Milwaukee, Wisconsin will host the RNC. Thousands of Republican acolytes will converge on the city, one of many urban centers that the GOP has consistently disparaged as liberal, black, and dangerous. If they disparage these cities, why do you think they hold their conventions there? Uh, Is this an intentional provocation? Yeah, that's a great question, and I have a similar question. And I would say that, um, on the one hand, the official explanation of the RNC is that they want to court support in purple states like Wisconsin, which, you know, um, as I say in the article, went for Trump in 2016, and then through the work mostly of black and brown organizers in Milwaukee and other places, but Milwaukee went for Biden by a shade in 2020 and has, we've held on to our Democratic governor, Tony Evers, but increasingly, the legislative politics um, in the state are very, very hard right. So on that like sort of overt level, it makes some sense for the R- the RNC to be wanting to court Wisconsin. It's odd. It's always odd when they come to Milwaukee, since you know the the public rhetoric of the party is that places like Milwaukee and Chicago are black and brown and terrifying, right? And then I do think there's a kind of stealth agenda that no one will officially talk about here because when the Rittenhouse verdict 
you know, the young, the young vigilante who came to Kenosha during the days of rage that followed the police shooting of activist Jacob Blake in 2020, when Kyle Rittenhouse, young man, comes toting a gun and shoots and shoots protesters, collaborates with the police, is told by them that, you know, thank, thank you for your help, kills one protester. When the verdict came down in 2021, I happened to be with a friend Outstate, we were meeting in the middle, and um, we picked the town, uh, a town between Milwaukee and Madison, very red, um, reliably red county. And it was scary to be in that county that day, just walking around. People were driving around with white supremacist flags. People were honking their horns. Like there was this sense of like we, and you can fill in who we would be, have triumphed over them. And I know for sure that I'm with them, right? Where them is protesters, people of color. Um, people who were taking the streets in Kenosha that night in 2020 when Kyle Rittenhouse apparently felt threatened by the presence of protesters and had to shoot some. And, you know, the jury found that this was kind of a take, make your own stand your ground. Like now our personal space is stand our ground and we can just shoot people when we feel slightly nervous. Right. This is really scary. And I don't think anyone in the RNC is going to say, hey, we decided to come test out the Rittenhouse verdict. But I do think some of now that the Republican Party is not, we're not. We, I, you know, I was just talking to students, and I was like, "Well, the far right," and then I had to correct myself, and I was like, "Actually, the mainstream right is now white nationalist." I know that some of the folks coming to Milwaukee this summer to attend the conference and and do other things, to attend the convention, do other things, are going to be wanting to test out that verdict. You know, I know that there's that going to be that desire because this was very well received in certain armed and dangerous quarters. You mentioned how he retaliated supposedly because he was feeling nervous. And when you use the word nervous, it made me think of how often you will hear far right white parents complain about their students learning about say slavery or their kids learning about slavery in classrooms and how that makes them feel uncomfortable so here we are protecting uh, people on the far right who feel nervous about protesters and here we are protecting people on the far right who think that their kids feel uncomfortable by learning about the real history of the united states what yeah. does that Absolutely. say what does that say to you about the state of the threat to white supremacy right now. Is that what we are protecting? We are protecting white supremacy by making it so people who feel nervous and are white can kill and people who feel uncomfortable and are white can learn myths. Exactly. No, exactly. And I think what we're seeing is nothing less than weaponized white fragility. You know, like, Really, if I like shot somebody every time I felt nervous, there'd be a lot of dead people, right? But I don't because I, I live in civil society and I respect my my fellow humans and I like deal with my issues, you know, like if I'm feeling nervous, I just deal. But this notion that white people like Kyle Rittenhouse are owed revenge against a city that they're scared of, like another solution would be stay home, Kyle, right? Drove across the border from Illinois. No, thank you. Um, another, you know, like that, as somebody who has spent most of my professional life in classrooms, um, I can tell you that I don't think students are very afraid of learning. You know, if you're doing it right, and if you create a situation in a classroom where students feel like they have the right to say, oh, I don't think so, or I didn't understand that, or why is that so? I have, you know, I don't think there's a kind of, there's resistance to that, but we have like their parents 
feeling like it's threatening to them to have their students come home and ask some difficult questions. Like what is colonialism and whose land is this? And you know, why in Milwaukee, why in our neighborhood is, does everyone look one way and a couple neighborhoods over people look another way? Like these are important foundational democratic questions. I have never found students resistant to talking about really hardly anything, but I have found parents who really want to constrain the parameters because of their own feelings of fragility, it makes them nervous, right? And like last time I checked, the Constitution doesn't really cover your right not to feel nervous. <laughs> so I'm sure it's in there somewhere. So you are, <laughs> you write the Republican Party supports uh, unbridled access to guns and applauds backing the badge against broad public calls for racial justice and police accountability. Testing out this verdict, which authorizes violence against nonviolent protesters, may be part of the unstated lure of Milwaukee as a site for the RNC, as you were just explaining. So even here in Chicago, as soon as the mid-July dates for the RNC were announced, several people told me they had immediately made plans to go to Milwaukee to protest, but they were expecting a fight with the far right. In your opinion, is the RNC, is that what they're doing? Is that what, are they looking for a fight? Is the goal to make the city look as bad as it can by being provocative to protesters and will protesters Give them what they want, and that is TV images of violent fights with police by protesters at a Republican convention in an urban area that roughly has, well, they have, it's roughly African-American, many, as many Americans as there are African-Americans as white people. Uh, I saw some statistics that said it was about the exact same, some that went a little bit either way. But will, do you think that uh, the protesters will give them what they want, and that is a fight for TV? I know a lot of the people involved in the coalition to march on the RNC. I know that they're incredibly skilled and careful organizers that think very carefully and with a lot of experience about the question of public safety for people attending the protests and people around the protest. I am not at all worried about protesters being quote unquote violent from the left. And I am very worried, as are many of my friends and comrades here, I'm very worried about the, situ- the situation in which a, an openly white supremacist, pro-gun, pro-extremist like Kyle Rittenhouse party arrives in the city without guaranteeing you know, good behavior. And you know, we can talk and I talk in the article about the ways in which our democratic city and state leadership has colluded in this. I'm very worried about them arriving, feeling that they have the run of the city and that they can be violent against protesters, against passersby, against um, Muslim appearing and black appearing people. Like this is the kind of violence that's very common in our city. And I'm worried about a huge escalation. Um, I, I don't, I do trust the left. I know those folks. I know how careful they are. I know how seriously they take public safety. I don't, I cannot say the same for the extre- the white nationalist extremists that are going to be part of the party in my city in July. And I really wish that they had not been invited, that we had sensibly stood them down as the city of Nashville in a far redder state said, you know what, we cannot take on having these people in our city at this time of extreme political polarization and violence. And we don't, we don't want to host the convention in Nashville. You know, to me, that would have been the honorable thing to do, but the very, um, 
racist politics of how Milwaukee is not funded by the state colluded to make this seem like a very good deal to Mayor Kev Johnson and Governor Tony Evers. And I know for a fact that a lot of progressive organizations who have links to these electeds tried to talk to them and say, you know, this doesn't seem like a good idea. We don't want them here. And there was literally no talking to them about this. So I, I am not worried about comrades on the left being violent. I know, I know how disciplined people are and I know how careful we are. I am very worried about the right and the people who will arrive in town. You know, and this could be anything from people who really come with their guns thinking, hey, I'm going to do a written house, to people who just want to come party, who have disdain for the people who live in our city, for the city in general, and for the people who live here. That's just, that is a, an accident waiting to happen. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I agree that, like, end of the day, Will there be scenes of violence? I mean, I think that the city thinks, I think Mayor Johnson and the chief of police think the way that we're gonna avoid that is to militarize the city, to have extra policing, to bring in, as they did in Kenosha, they had people from the um, Immigration Customs Enforcement, they had vans that they were putting protesters into. So like you have this like weird kind of federalizing the city. Um, the National Guard was here in 2020 during the George Floyd protests. You know, I, th I think that that's how they think they're going to keep things safe. Um, but I don't know that that's a way to keep things safe for everybody. I mean, you were sort of talking in the intro about people still, you know, protesters winding up in jail. I think we're looking at the specter of that. I think, you know, we know that Kenosha police gave Kyle Rittenhouse the thumbs up. Not like go ahead and kill people, but hey, we're glad you're here. You seem to be carrying a couple of assault weapons. Rock on. Like, I, I we don't want this kind of dog whistle happening in our city, but I worry about the way things are arranged. Do you think that what will take place on the streets uh, in the, at the RNC in Milwaukee, do you think that that may become a revelation, not only to, uh, you know, mainstream liberals, but also to Republicans, uh, the revelation of what their party has become. Well, that is very optimistic, Chuck. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if we think about Minneapolis after the murder of George Floyd, right? Um, uh, my daughter was in school there. And um, a lot of the things we were hearing outside of Minneapolis about violence by protesters, it's been pretty clearly proven that the the violence were right-wing instigators, like the Boogaloo Boys and others, who see these, these kinds of conflagrations or potential conflagrations as places to drive the polarization forward and make it violent. So I guess I'm not confident, present company accepted, that our national media is capable of reading a situation and saying, oh, hey, there was violence you know, um, let's really look at who is perpetrating the violence and who is suffering from the violence. I think the grammar, and I think this has permeated our mainstream media, is there were protesters, there was violence, thence, hence the protesters were violent, right? So I don't, I think that the, the wake-up call that you're blithely predicting is unlikely to happen because of fabrications that take place in our national media. The notion that pro a large protest of progressive and left forces is always going to be violent, right? The notion that there's this like there are black the the black bloc are anarchists that are going to go around and mess up your city. I think there are going to be people messing up our city, but I don't think they're going to be leftists. 
but I do, I am not that confident of the, the ways that, you know, outfits like CNN, MSNBC, New York Times will cover such a thing. I think that they're, they're already, you know, like if we think about the ways that media is shaped by ideology and mindset, I think many of the reporters who will come here already have that grammar of big protest, protesters, violence, cops have to intervene. It would take a very careful, thoughtful, and um, independent media to discern and publicize that. And I don't think that's what we're looking at in this country right now. And one that's willing to address and investigate and look at root causes. And again, that's not what our media is doing right now. You mentioned how Milwaukee got the convention after, uh, well, essentially at the exact same moment, essentially, when uh, Nashville turned it down. Visit VisitMilwaukee.com a tourism website says that the convention will bring in $200 million to Milwaukee. Do you think Milwaukee got the convention and didn't make the same considerations that Nashville did because simply a bottom line decision? That is, it is far more financially desperate than Nashville is. The city is financially desperate, yes. But political scientist Phil Rocco, who I quote in the article, did a study like very little of that $200 million is going to come to denizens and citizens of Milwaukee. It's mostly going to go to um, big hotel chains, the convention center. So in, in the, in even the like incorrect notion that this is trickle down economics, that's just not true that we have to like look at that critically, you know, for sure. The people with money and power who will benefit for this were probably pushing hard to bring the convention here because it's a business opportunity. But it's it's adding insult to injury to then turn around and say, because there was kind of an impetus by the city council to say, okay, well, if we're going to do this, let's set aside the paltry sum of $6 million for the city, right? We live in a city where, you know, when my kids were in Milwaukee public schools, there was this program called the SAGE program through which the state funded classrooms from K-4 to second grade to have two teachers and 30 students. Think about this, 35-year-olds, two teachers. Like, that's the, that's, that's the least of it. If you've been around a bunch of five-year-olds, right? That program was canceled because of austerity. Now it's one teacher to 35 students. So we need every penny. But, you know, that, that didn't go, the idea that we're going to set aside. Like, if all this money is coming into the city, hey, let's set aside some for the actual people who live here to improve their lives, to improve our public education, our our public health, all the things that we're hurting from, right? But that was too much, right? We're talking about 3% of, of, of $200 million being set aside for the for the people of Milwaukee. No, that wasn't, that was, that was you know, as, as Cap Johnson said, that was a poison pill. We can't do that, right? So this is not gonna benefit the city. It's gonna benefit the same people that benefit from everything, but you know, they, those people own stadiums and hotels and they're, they're, I'm not worried about their well-being at all. So, Cav Johnson, he's campaigning for mayor in Milwaukee. He goes to the RNC and he says, "We really want to get the, uh, we want really want to get the convention in Milwaukee." He pushes for it while he is campaigning for mayor. Is that what got him elected by campaigning? Not only that, I will bring you the RNC, but I'm gonna I'm gonna turn around the economy based on bringing you the RNC. Did Cav uh, Johnson win election because of his support for a convention that many Milwaukeeans may not want? I think the promise of turning around the city, yes. Um, 
made Cav Johnson popular. I think that he was talking to powerful people and um, getting support, financial support from them. Um, and I, you know, I, you know, what happened at it sort of in this whole process was at the same time, but maybe not causally, subsequent to agreeing to take on the RNC, um, the state finally passed Act 12, which allowed Milwaukee to get some shared revenues from the state. Right now, um, before that, we got Dennis, residents of Milwaukee who paid tax, taxes got less of our state taxes back in terms of city services than um, in suburban communities, right? There's a there's a state funding formula by which the per pupil expenditure in Milwaukee is less than it is in small towns and suburbs elsewhere in the state, right? So we're being starved. And subsequent to agreeing to have the RNC come, and I, I don't really know, it's a really good question, like did the the representatives, is this payback for that? Because we do have a Republican dominated state house. They passed Act 12, which said that we could um, you know, share some state revenues, impose local taxes, but, so you know, this is like a huge thing for Johnson. He's, he, he's talking about it a lot now, about how the state, the economy of the city is improved under his watch. The problem with Act 12 is that the, the money that we raise or get back and or get back from the state can only be spent on emergency service, including policing, right? So there's not, you know, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing for the schools, there's nothing for mental health, there's nothing for physical health, there's nothing for our parks. You know, it's a very clear vision of a militarized, a city that needs to be militarized and policed more, as opposed to a city that could blossom with that $6 million or more. Like if we spent, we have this really wonderful, um, public school system in place, it's just being starved. And, you know, at some point, you know, if, if Ronald Reagan started with the Star of the Beast, you know, I feel like living in Wisconsin, I'm just looking at all these like emaciated cattle that you can push over with your finger. You know, they, they've starved the beasts. The beasts are dying. Public education is dying here. We're a, we're a, um, we're a, um, not charter school, we're a private school experimentation city. Where you know, I, I teach at University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, where all the administrators ever talk about is austerity and cuts. And that's, you know, this is at a time of state budgetary surpluses, where the state could be saying, hey, we have a surplus, let's let's fund our universities, let's fund our cities. But no, the state is saying, we'll let you raise taxes to have more cops. So that tells you something about state attitudes towards Milwaukee and what we need. You write that many of the city's problems are inflicted from above. Its current position is a product of state policies deliberately configured to favor suburban and rural areas at the expense of urban taxpayers. So is it a zero-sum game? Is there a conflict between Milwaukee and some college towns that also support, uh, are, support Milwaukee and other big cities and the rest of the state for resources? Do the suburbs and rural areas only do well? when Milwaukee is deprived of resources? I mean, of course not. I mean, by definition, the state surplus means, hey, we have some money in Madison that we could throw around and we could throw it towards places that have been, that we have deliberately, you know, this is not like, oh, we need the state to save us. This is like, we need the state to stop beating the crap out of us. It's not an, an, an ask for charity, it's an ask for equity. You know, um, it so 
I think that it's not a zero sum game. I think we could have wonderful schools outstate and wonderful schools in the suburbs and really spend money on MPS so that, you know, instead of, you know, what happens, and I talk about this in the article too, with Act 12, a campaign, a grassroots campaign to get cops out of schools won in 2020. With Act 12, they'll be put back. Act 12 is like, you know, it's like a right-wing poison pill. It goes against um, affirmative action in state contracting. It names the Fire and Police Commission in Milwaukee by name and um, restacks the votes in the commission. It's clearly payback for anything, anything good that's happened in Milwaukee, most of which comes from the grassroots, most of which is the campaign led by Rosas de la Frontera and Lit and other black and brown orgs to get cops out of schools because because that makes kids unsafe, right? If if um, if the first response in an urban school when a kid has weed in their locker is tell the cop versus when a kid has weed in their locker in a suburban school and it's like call mom, that kid in the in with the weed in their locker in the urban school is at risk of being beaten up by the cops, of being, you know, of getting a record at, as a minor, of being tracked into the system. There's a reason they talk about the school to prison pipeline. Whereas in the suburbs, call to mom, lawyer, expunge it from your record. You know, we're talking about how you configure essentially a long, slow war against the people of Milwaukee and make it look as though the people of Milwaukee aren't capable of governance. And this is very, you know, this is, we're back around at the Republicans and the way that they talk about cities like Chicago and Milwaukee as these hellscapes. You know, I, I go to Chicago, I belong to a synagogue in Chicago, and I'm always like, I don't, I literally don't know what the Republicans are talking about. I do know, of course, ideologically, but like, they don't go to Chicago, they don't go to Milwaukee. It is pretty interesting that they'll be in Milwaukee, a city that they claim to be terrified of. And then, you know, here's that rhythm again. We're back to white fragility, right? So they're going to come here and be scared. And that's dangerous. So is it the same community organizations that, you know, helped bring about all these police reforms, helped bring about things like body cameras, helped bring about things like not having police officers in schools? Are those the same community organizations and activists and protesters and organizers that got the vote out in 2020 for the Biden campaign? Because I'm curious, is this going to, is this turning their back on police reform? Is that going to have an impact on the November 2024 presidential election in Milwaukee? Could this mean that uh, President Trump or former President Trump will have a better opportunity at winning Milwaukee because people have turned their backs on the community organizations that brought the vote the last time around? I think people have not turned their backs on the community orgs. Um, if you think about, you know, the, the, some of the orgs that worked for um, SOP 575, you know, to to get access, get impacted families access to body cameras, like the Milwaukee Alliance, um, and um, lit. Some of them, some of them do, and some of them don't do electoral stuff. I know Voces de la Frontera does a huge get out the vote campaign, Voceros um, por el voto, um, and Block does you know huge get out the vote like they have turned wisconsin from sort of a red purple to a blue purple and i don't think the problem is with the orgs the problem is that it's very hard for progressives to vote for biden particularly you know i, I hear a lot we have a really beautiful wisconsin coalition for justice in palestine i hear a lot from people of all ages that they don't want to vote for genocide joe right you know um Voces de la frontera is 
primarily a worker center and immigrant rights community. Biden has been worse on immigration than Trump. He just doesn't talk about it the same way. So I think liberals are like, oh, we don't have Trump. Like, well, if you're at the border, no difference at all. So I don't know, but then I don't, I'm not the person who does these electoral campaigns. I don't know how they're going to go back to the same well, the same people who voted for change in 2020 and say, hey, you know, you didn't get change and actually things are getting worse. And like there have been, you know, massive appropriations for a genocidal war in, in Israel that 70% of the American electorate doesn't support. And um, also we're like militarizing the border and, you you know, your your undocumented neighbors just got more deportable. And, oh, yeah, there's no more DACA. But, you know, maybe vote for change again, because like the change did not come. So I don't think it's on the grassroots orgs. I think it's on the fact that we keep electing people that don't represent us. Cav Johnson is one of them. Joe Biden is another. We are speaking with historian and writer Rachel Ida Buff, who posted the Boston Review article, The Right Comes to Milwaukee. Why did the Blue City agree to host the Republican National Convention and to suspend a hard-won police reform for its duration? Her, two, her 2020 book, A is for Asylum, Words for People on the Move, uh, was published by Fordham University Press. In it, Rachel attempts to sort the meanings and historical genealogies of the inflated and sometimes incendiary uh, contemporary terms used to describe migrants. And I'll have a question, a few questions for her about immigration in a few minutes, but you can follow her on Twitter at Rachel Ida Tweets, and you can find more of her writing, including her poetry at atlasofadifficult.wordpress.com. Dot com. So you write that um, months after Milwaukee was announced as the RNC host, the city's venerable fire and police commission, I want to find out more about this, voted to suspend for the duration of the convention a recently passed police accountability policy that had been won through years of grassroots organi- organizing a transparency requirement that would make officer body camera footage of critical incidents like police shootings rapidly available to impacted families for a fraught two weeks in July. Police involved violence will be shielded from police scrutiny. And you mentioned how founded in 1885, the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission was the first civic body of its kind in the United States. Its origins, according to historian Will Chakiridis, lie in progressive era reforms aimed at undermining communist organizing and purporting to modernize policing. So what does it do now? What is its function? Is it, a, is it a police union? Is it a community oversight citizens organization? What is the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission? And could we use something like that in Chicago? You know, it is it is a move towards civilian oversight of the police. And that's an important point because Act 12 kind of rearranged the membership of the FPC and said there had to be more representative from police and fire. The idea of it, and I really commend to you Will Zacharides' work on this, um, he has a a web page, um, I will have to spell his last name so that you can find it, but um, let me do that at another point. Um, so this was, you know, this is, this was progressive era, early 20th century police reform, right? you know, like that that there needs to be some kind of civilian oversight of police. Milwaukee has a fairly unique in the United States tradition of socialist mayors in the 20th century, who um, they call themselves the sewer socialists. They were like, you know, we're going to be socialists and, you know, our provenance is going to be municipal democracy, municipal equity. 
they um, under our socialist mayors, we, for example, filled in a lot of the lakefront that was all privately owned and made public beaches. So, you know, that, that the, the police commission, fire police commission comes out of that moment. And the idea is civilian oversight. So the Milwaukee Alliance Against Racist and Police Repression, MARPR, or locally we call them the Alliance, had been working with families impacted by police violence, which is, you can set your watch by it in Milwaukee, as you can in most cities, that police consistently kill young, mostly black and brown people. So as part of its anti-police violence campaign, Marper was working very closely with some of the families. And what the families said to them was, we want to see the body, the body camera footage. We want to see what happened. We want to have control of the narrative so the police don't hold on to it for like three months and say, he was coming, he was coming at me with a knife. And then, you know, when you look at the police footage three months later, when the media story has already been written, it's like he didn't even have a knife and he was running the other way, right? This is clipped from the headlines. This is, this, is, this is real talk. This happens here, as it does in other cities. So this reform, which is part of Marper's campaign to make the police accountable to the community, to have community control of the police, right? This was hard won. Like they, they you know, Marper worked with the families. There were many, many um, fire and police commission meetings that, you know, where Marper packed the room with families and allies and community members and organizers saying, you know, we want this accountability. And eventually, and this is how democracy is supposed to work, right? The fire and police commission, which has historically had um, representat progressive representation and representation from community color, communities of color, passed SOP 575 saying people impacted by police violence can have access to the body camera footage within 15 days, which is already kind of a long time if you're thinking about media spin, right? But it's faster. So I, I wrote this article, like I, I wasn't planning to, this was not in my writing queue for this fall, but I kept being at meetings and hearing about this because it's, it's so dramatic that this campaign, which took two years and incredible organizing and packed meetings and all the stuff of democracy, the ugly pain in the butt, go to the meeting, go to the next meeting, organize another meeting, like that is really what democracy looks like. And then in one meeting, in closed session, they, at the, at the request of the police union, speaking for not only the Milwaukee police, but the Milwaukee area police collaboration, which is a broader, you know, sort of mentioned in your um, introduction, suburbs and rural towns that send police um, when needed. At the behest of those folks, in closed session, they said, we're not going to, we're not going to enforce SOP 575 for two weeks. If you think about a city that murders its young routinely, and, you know, then the families of the young say, like, you know, we, we want to stop this. And this is one way we can see to stop this, that we have some access to the story, that we can see what happened, that we can protest it. And then that same city comes back around and says, you know, we don't always want you to know that, especially when we're having these the Republican convention here like that. This is like um, it felt like I was continually hearing about a horror story. And so I started acting, asking the organizers I knew, like, is anyone writing this story? Because I was sure that everyone was writing this story because I know that a lot of people are going to come to town, not only Republicans to attend the convention, but we're going to have a lot of protesters, progressive protesters coming here too. And I was like, well, the country kind of needs to know what we're getting into here. You know, like, just like, you know, we were talking a little while ago about the ways representations of what happens here will likely be skewed politically, you know, 
it's really important that we know that the police have already been kind of unleashed in a certain way. That, you know, things that people have worked for to get more police accountability, to get more community control have been suspended for the duration of the convention. And like, I don't really know how that's playing in the RNC. If they're saying, hey, hey, you know, police accountability is suspended for the duration, like have a good time here. Like, I don't know if they're publicizing that, but that feels like um, kind of a preemptive win for folks who might want to be violent here. So what is the police reasoning for not allowing rapid release of footage? Because we we were just recently discussing uh, here on the show, uh, having a conversation with award-winning ProPublica journalist Eric Umansky uh, about police body cam footage and how it's often edited to best suit the police. Mm-hmm. So does the police have a non-self-serving reason to not release body cam footage, the families of police uh, shooting victims? And and will any more of a fair conclusion come with these police videos if families are given rapid access to them? Because, again, you know, when you're looking at a video, you're looking at a slow motion replay in a sporting event, you're going to have different biases and you may have different opinions of what happened in that. So so the two questions are then, uh, what is the police reasoning for not allowing this rapid release? And will rapid release actually come to a fair conclusion on these police-involved shootings? Okay, to take um, part one first, the problem and, you know, what the police chief and the, you know, so the, the police union sued the next day. Like, we don't like this kind of oversight which is telling, right? Because as you point out, like two weeks, you get the body camera footage, like better than not getting it, but definitely not, it's no silver bullet. I guess that's not a great metaphor, but you know, it's not gonna fix things that quickly, right? But it's something. But what the the police said, and um, Ed Fallon had warned about this, and the police chief and the mayor had talked about this, is that, you know, if you go to, if you go outside of Milwaukee, there aren't, the same, there isn't the same kind of broad grassroots pressure for police accountability. People might support it individually, but you know, in a lot of a lot of the police who will be coming to Milwaukee to assist with the RNC are not accustomed to even wearing body cameras, right? So we're talking about a pretty big cultural divide. And the narrative was that that was just um, a bridge too far, that you can't ask suburban and rural police forces to come to Milwaukee to help out with the RNC and make them wear body cameras that, you know, so that, that the police department didn't feel like it could guarantee that um, SOP 575 would be followed. So it needed to be suspended. Um, The second part of your question is a really good question. And, you know, I've talked to the um, Milwaukee Alliance organizers a fair amount, and I, I think that they see this as a piece of the puzzle. Um, and I understand why families would want to have access to see what happened. Um, I think, you know, two weeks is better than 10 weeks or never in terms of rejiggering the story and getting the truth out. It's, it's a pretty ongoing struggle, right? Between like, you know, why are the police, why do these police murders occur? How do they occur? Um, you know, are are you know are are allegations that the police need to defend themselves? Are those true? And um, you know, 
questions like that coming from the grassroots and coming from communities that experience this, you know, constant precarious vulnerability to the police. So I, I, my sense from talking to the organizers is they see this as a piece of the puzzle towards community control and police accountability. And one question that the editor at Boston Review asked me is like, well, these guys, I presume they're abolitionists. And I talked to them and they're like, no, we're really not abolitionists. We believe in community control. We think the police should be responsive to the communities that they, that they um, work in, you know, which is a little bit different maybe than some prevailing assumptions about, you know, how leftists think about policing. But I, I know that um, no one at the grassroots thinks that 575 is going to take care of the problem. It's just, you know, it's, it's like, it was like kind of a, okay, we got that. We got that. That was it. That was, you know, any time to me that, regular citizens show up at um, very, the channels that are available to us, which are fewer and fewer, and make demands and are heard, that's a good thing. It was great when Lit and Voces prevailed to get cops out of the schools. It was great when Voces and other orgs filled City Hall the entire fall of, for an entire fall, I think it was 2018 or 2019, to protest the ICE collaboration with Milwaukee police that had resulted in the arrest of um, a local father and won and got his release. Like, does this solve the whole problem? No, but it's capacity building, right? Because it gives us on the ground, like, oh, I went to a couple of protests and hey, we won. Maybe I'll go to other protests instead of like, yeah, I went to a bunch of protests and like, the, you know, this is the Biden problem, right? Vote for Biden, vote for change. Four years later, you're like, I'm still waiting for the change and I'm not all that inclined to do anything. It matters when the grassroots prevail because it means that we can work on other campaigns. Just a couple more questions for you, Rachel. Uh, you write that understanding urban politics through a frame of anti-colonial resistance, original police reform organizers saw community control of the police as key to any hope for racial justice in the, in the city. How was anti-colonial resistance at play in this movement and why? How does the police represent colonialism? Yeah, well, so this is, um, I, I'm leaning a little bit on the really brilliant work of Eli Frank, who is right now completing a, a master's in the department I teach in, in history, um, into kind of the political context that the Milwaukee Alliance first emerged out of in the 1970s, which is what was called at the time kind of a third worldist um, context. And if we think about the analysis of the Black Panthers, of the Young Lords, their attitude was that the central city, that black and brown communities were what they called an internal colony and that the police were the occupying army. And they identified that through, you know, kind of anti-colonial thinkers. You know, you could start with like Franz Fanon and others that they, you know, that they saw their struggles for community control against police brutality, for um, better schools and housing and all those things as framed in an internationalist context, that their, their struggles for liberation against the occupying army were similar to other struggles the world over. So, you know, we could talk about um, Palestinian struggles against the occupation. We could talk about um, uh, anti-colonial struggles taking place in the 1970s in the formerly colonized world in Africa and, you know, and so that kind of, you could call it like a um, conversion factor. Like, so, you know, how is it that 
black and brown organizing in central city milwaukee is like um black organizing in algeria or in you know in other countries that are struggling against uh, colonialism and you know how is how that that metaphor provides the ground and that's what that's part of where the rhetoric of community control emerges out of like if we're going to be colonized internally the the fight would be to take control where the colonizers the occupying army the police have to respond to what we need not what the empire and you know the empire could be lots of things in this in this case the rubric of empire is kind of um you know the white supremacist government of the country and of the city right we need we need to we need to control these forces we don't want them arrayed against us so that's a really powerful um, metaphor that evolves and is really influential in the founding of the original MARPER, which is around the Free Angela Davis campaign in Milwaukee, and brought mostly black and brown young organizers together for similar kinds of struggles as we see con the contemporary iteration of the Milwaukee Alliance taking on. And, you know, I think that that's a really powerful metaphor and it's related to, but distinct from contemporary struggles for um, defunding the police and towards police abolition, which are, I think, related, but different. And, and the organizers of MARPA were pretty careful to say like, no, we're not, we're not abolitionists. Um, I think because they adhere to this particular tradition of um, anti-colonial analysis of the central cities. So the way that we conclude each and every one of our uh, interviews, uh, Rachel, is by asking our guest what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. But I enjoyed your writing so much. Not only do I have a question from hell for you, I have three. We are speaking with historical or historian and writer Rachel Ida Buff, who posted the Boston Review article, The Right Comes for Milwaukee. All right. So first, is policing proving to be invulnerable to demands for reforms? And whenever demands are met, they are never fulfilled by the police or the government. Is the relationship between the government and police proving to be unassailable, as historian Austin McCoy noted on our show back in November 2022. We've cited Austin on saying that on so many occasions on the show, that if it was a drinking game, our audience would be drunk right now, that the relationship between police and the government is unassailable, that is invulnerable to democracy and democratic reforms. And if it is, what does that say about American democracy? Yeah, that's such a good and horrifying question. Thank you for all these hateful, hate. thank you for all the hate. <laughs> sure, for you, anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think like if we think about Minneapolis and, you know, the Jacob Fry mayoral administration, which really resisted so many of the changes coming from the grassroots, demanded by the grassroots during this the George Floyd summer and, um, you know, really have implemented like kind of neoliberal policing reform, you know, so like there's reform, there's change, but it's not more responsive to the community. It's not located in the community. What we're seeing, and like, I, I think we could talk, we need to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of an academic-y word here, neoliberal is neoliberal capitalism coming about in the late 1970s and 1980s, in which there are more and more kind of ways to manage things that are not responsive to grassroots democracy, that are designed not to be responsive to grassroots democracy. So I wrote this article in part because I'm like, oh my God, here's a win. You know, a beautiful two-year, you know, 
chew leather consuming win that was overturned like that, bam. Right. And there's this, this, you know, and, and this is kind of like, you know, if you, if you think about this story, it's kind of got all the, it's kind of got all the elements, right? So the people show up, the people show up, the people show up, finally the people prevail. Then the government closes their doors and they're like, no, no, uh, we're going to rejigger that. Like, that's not how democracy is supposed to work. That's not what the fire and police commission are for. So, you know, it, it does lead us to think that, lead me to think that Austin McCoy has some points. I mean, I'm a glass half full gal. I want to think that democracy can work, but, you know, we fight really hard for really little change that can then be jerked away. I have witnessed in my career at the University of Wisconsin, which once had standards of governance that were looked to by the whole world for its faculty, like faculty control of curriculum, of educational matters. I have watched that be chipped away by the UW system at the behest of the UW legislature over the 20 years I've spent in this in this um, in this system so that, you know, governance is now something that, you know, administrators gesture towards before they do what the consultants they paid told them to do in, in terms of education. So we are at a pretty pass in terms of democracy. It is pretty hateful and difficult. Maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic than Austin McCoy in saying, you know, there are cities where this has mattered, New York, Portland, where there has been police reforms that matters, the end of stop and frisk in New York, really important. You know, I don't think we can like throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the bathwater is getting hotter. Okay, so my second of three questions from Al for you. So when the world is watching, what will they see this July at the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee? Honestly, a lot of the conversations I have with friends and comrades is like, should we just leave? <laughs> should we go anywhere else? In, in, you know, like part of me wants to like definitely be here, like, you know, defend my city, stand with my people, all of those things. I'm really scared about the combination of um, police who've never known a body camera and armed white nationalists who are going to feel that white fragility on the streets of my city and be trigger happy. So I don't know. I hope, I really hope that the powers that be who have so insisted on seizing the reins, so we're talking about the mayor, we're talking about the police department, I hope that they can, I hope that they can hold the reins. I don't particularly think that the response to protest is more policing. Um, and when I was talking to Ed Fallone, who's somebody I know from, you know, organizing work in the community, and I have a lot of respect for him, one of the things he said was, you know, we don't want a situation, we want these area police to come in because we don't want a situation where protesters outnumber police. And I was like, actually, I really do want a situation where protesters outnumber police. Like, that's that's what democracy looks like. You have, whatever, 20,000 protesters and you have a few police we now are going to have more police. They're going to be more lawless. I think we saw in Kenosha that the loyalties of the police, where the police feel comfortable, is often closer to where the white nationalists are than where the where the left protesters are. I mean, I I, I can't my my psychic powers are not able to tell you what July is going to look like, but I'm pretty scared. 
Years ago, we talked with uh, Guardian writer Trevor Tim, and he was telling us how the Trump immigration policy was essentially the Obama immigration policy continued in the Trump administration. It got worse, but he said that that was the trajectory it was on and that immigration policy here in the United States is essentially bipartisan. So my question, my final question from hell for you is if President Trump was reelected, how much worse would it get at the U.S.-Mexico border, considering what uh, you were saying at the beginning of our, early on in our conversation, that the Biden administration's policy on immigration looks remarkably like the Trump administration's? Yeah, that is a question from hell, because these are policies from hell. Um, the thing to remember is that the private detention firms like Geo Group and G4S are bipartisan donors. So it doesn't matter who's in office, their detention centers need to be filled, even if, as has been happening since um, Reagan, even if it's filled with people who have the internationally certified right to claim asylum. Like, think about this. Like, I, I can't say this enough. Things become unbearable for you in your nation of origin because of your political views. And your kids are threatened in school. Maybe they beat up or murder one of your kids and you gotta go. You just go, right? You like grab what you can and you go and you get to the US-Mexico border and you say, um, hey, I've been persecuted for my political views. What's supposed to happen in international law is that that who's ever at the, you know, guarding the border says, oh, come on in, we're gonna give you, we're gonna give you a fair hearing and see if you get asylum here. What happens now is you get thrown into the slammer and into the private slammer that, you know, GeoGroup, G4S, um, lots of other cor corporations who give to Democrats and Republicans are very happy to see you show up because they're going to like not feed you and not not clothe you and not keep you safe and warm. And they're going to get a lot of money for that. So that's the backbeat here since Reagan, since the um, Haitian so-called Haitian refugee crisis of the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I think in terms of policy, again, I think Trump and Biden are a lot alike. I think the distinction, and this is important, is Trump doesn't even bother to dog whistle, right? He's just bellowing disgusting things all the time. So what, what Trump does that's different and important, and this is drawing on a history of like militarized white supremacy, like, you know, people who came back from Vietnam and and felt really enraged and um, became mercenaries or didn't become mercenaries and, and like became border activists in, in, in the sense that they were trying to make sure that the stuff we're seeing um, Greg Abbott exhibit now, trying to push people back, trying to menace people at the border, trying to beat up people who make it across the border because they felt like there wasn't enough border enforcement. So we have this like right wing, you know, nationalist, xenophobic stuff that's been going on for a long time. Trump articulates that and legitimates that in a way that Biden doesn't. Downside of that is it becomes more mainstream to be a racist, xenophobic hate machine. Upside, I have to say, and you know, I, I am not voting for Mr. Trump ever, during the Trump administration, money from liberals poured into immigrant rights orgs in a different way than it has under Biden. So the bad and the good thing about Trump is like he is a hate, he is like a 24-hour spewer of hate loudly and, and crassly in every way that he can. That legitimates white nationalist violence 
I, I think Trump and his um, lackeys are personally responsible for a lot of the racial violence we've seen in the past six years. But it also makes it apparent. Again, I think most liberals think, oh, we don't have Trump, so things are fine at the border. But, you know, that's a pretty dangerous game, right? You know, I hear progressives frustrated with Biden saying, well, I'm not going to vote or I'm just going to vote for Trump. And I think like, you know, it's pretty bad to have this guy who's broadcasting this time coming into office and acting, you know, acting in, an, in a definitively fascist way. Like, we don't want to legitimate that. We don't want to survive that. We don't want to live in a country where people are thrown in jail for protesting, right? And that's what we're looking at with Trump. You know, um, so it's, I, I do think that Biden, if you go Obama, Trump, Biden, you see, I mean, look, with Obama, at least we had the arrival of DACA, which is like, Obama's response to the demand for the Dream Act, which which he, which never happened, right? We did see some ameliorative moves, and you know what we learned. What I learned from Biden is the right wing spin machine is so powerful at the border that Biden is completely obesant to it. If you think about the legislation, the dreadful, disgusting legislation that hopefully will not hit the floor of Congress. I never thought I would say this, but you know, grateful to the Republicans for like resisting it. But, you know, it, it it's kind of the many-headed hydra, right? So it's going to be more money to Israel to continue the genocide of Gaza, more money to Ukraine, and money to, and this is fiction, and I need to point this out because hopefully some people will hear this um, broadcast. The idea that anyone can close the U.S.-Mexico border is like a cartoon idea. That is not how borders or people or space or people who are desperate for refuge work. But this trope of a closed border of, you know, that that is a Fox News and to the right of Fox News trope that Biden has now happily taken on. So, yeah, that was a hellish <laughs> question. And I think I kind of got lost in the inferno. Of no, the that's OK, because uh, that was an answer from hell. That was very <laughs> that was uh, so, Rachel, thank you so much for being on our show. And, you know, the other thing that always bugs me about this is that. Again, like you were saying, they'll always say there's a migration crisis when people are trying to leave places like Syria or Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan that are being bombed. There's a war crisis. There's a migrant crisis. And here in North America, we don't have an immigration crisis. We have a hemispheric sanctions and democracy crisis. Those are the real crises that we're going through right now, not immigration crisis. But Rachel, Rachel, I really appreciate you being on the show. Rachel Ida Buff is author of A is for Asylum, Words for People on the Move. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel Ida tweets. Thank you so much for being on our show. I am going to annoy you in the future and have you back on the show. Really appreciate the fascinating and enlightening conversation. Truly appreciate it, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. And yeah, hit me up again. I'd be happy to come back. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. If our conversation with Rachel gave you growing concerns for activists, organizers, and protesters who will be attending the RNC in Milwaukee, or the DNC here in Chicago, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience, and how are our listeners responding on wherever you can find some answers? I think we're going to get a little from everywhere since... Uh... 
I posted They're it They're trickling late. in a little slowly. Yeah, that's because me. My, my mistake. That's all right. Um, I posted the Patreon late, so it's all good. Um, this one comes from listener Dan K, who posted this question to the Welcome to the Hellhole Face Group page. How long can this go on? <laughs> That's a good one. That is a good one. Well, I'll start with Discord this time. We have one response on there from DigDug, who answers, If this means gaming the Q of H, the question from hell, uh, by entering multiple responses across social media platforms without winning any of them, no longer. This will not stand. Way to go, DigDug. You figured out the secret to get all that beautiful swag <laughs> and don't think we don't notice <laughs> all right where else you got uh, over in the hellhole two responses one from our very own pete uh who says longer than you think <laughs> and then <laughs> that's good and then tom k who answers until the lease is up and they go condo <laughs> Nice. I've been there. That's a good one. Definitely been there, Tom. (laughs) All right. What else do we have? We're on X, Twitter. Petre G answers, until morale improves. (laughs) And then there is a gif from Terminator 2 of one of those terrifying T-800 robots uh-huh. stomping on a skull. Oh, nice. So that's, that's nice. I was visiting Detroit in like 1998, I think it was, okay. when things were n- not going well. Pretty gnarly, yeah. Not going well in Detroit. And uh, on the side of a vacant building downtown, I mean, this building had to be eight, ten stories tall, they were just playing a loop of a video the size of the entire wall of a foot stepping on a guy's head and then it crushes and turns to dust. Oh god. And it was just looping that every 20 seconds over and over and over. And I was like, well, that's exactly what I expect from Detroit. Thank you very much. No kidding. For fulfilling my belief. That should be the trailer of this show. It should Um, be. Let's see. Do you want regular Facebook? Sure. There are nine responses on there. Let's do that. All right. We have Adam A whose answer to the question, how long can this go on, is, how long have we got? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, Dan T. says, longer than you, T-W-S-S. Oh, what's that? I don't know what that means. I'm I'm not hip enough. Mm, Let me look it up Uh, while you're reading the next one. (laughs) Sounds good. Uh, Borky B. answers, until morale improves. Again. As well. Uh, Ray O. says... Till the heat death of the universe? Question mark. <laughs> well, Sarah H answers, unfortunately for all of us, quite a bit longer than it should. You're going to be so disappointed what TWSS means. What does it mean? That's what she said. Uh, <laughs> I should have known that. Uh, uh, man. Can I use that during... Uh, let's say debates I'm having with my partner. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, TWSS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got any more? Yeah, we have Aaron D, who responds twice as long as it's been going on. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Laura A responds with why it's the song that never ends. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, Doug M, this, this. Have you forgotten about that? <laughs> nice. Is that the last one? Uh, no, and then last one's from Fabio, 
L, who says, as long as it takes. As long as it takes. That's a pretty good one. Yep. And uh, did we catch up on all the ones at Patreon? There are a couple new ones on Patreon. What are those? Three, in fact. Um, Keith T responds, until Elon's Mars colony is ready for us. (laughs) Nice. Nas Refuge. I'd say four months at best. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then Adi. That's very specific. I need you to elaborate, (laughs) Nas Refuge. Um, Then finally, Adi answers, I ask myself this every time Thomas Friedman writes a new article. Pretty damn long, it appears. <laughs> the, per- the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all of our stuff. We will be announcing the winner of this week's question from Hell tomorrow following the que- the moment of truth with Jeff Georgian. Uh Will, what's Jeff talking about this week? Jeff drags the atheists to Jesus. Uh, nice. All right. That sounds like a blast. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. This week in rotten history, on February 8th, 1837, 187 years ago this week, after the election of President Martin Van Buren, the U.S. Senate was called upon to choose a new vice president because no candidate for that office had received a majority in the Electoral College. Who knew? I know I didn't. In what remains the only such vote ever taken under the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, the Senate chose one of its own. Senator Richard M. Johnson, yes, his name was Richard Johnson, of Kentucky, a Democrat. Like so many U.S. politicians of his day, Senator Johnson was a slave owner because we only elect the best and the brightest. I mean the worst and the whitest. Johnson was also a close friend of John Cleves Sims. Guess how John spells his last name. Because you can't. A lecturer who traveled the country promoting his theory that the earth was hollow and that its interior could be accessed through large openings at the North and South Pole. And you thought conspiracy theories and theorists were new to U.S. politics. Guess again, that's been going on forever. A year before becoming vice president, Johnson had introduced a Senate bill to provide federal funding for a large-scale expedition to the center of the earth. The measure was not adopted, go figure. As vice president, he cast 14 tie-breaking votes in the Senate, more than any other VP until that time. He also experienced financial problems that provoked him to take a nine-month leave of absence so that he could go home to Kentucky and open a tavern to make some money, which is something you will never see again because the vast majority of people elected to office today are millionaires as they are the only ones with the resources and connections and money to have a shot at winning in our failing democracy. As President Van Buren got ready to run for re-election in 1840, he and top party officials decided to kick Johnson off the ticket. Van Buren was then defeated by William Henry Harrison, who would die in office after just 31 days as president. Meanwhile, Johnson went back to Kentucky for good, where he ran his tavern and served in the state legislature before suffering dementia, and finally dying of a stroke in 1850, although he did believe in a hollow earth, so how could they really tell that he was suffering from dementia? And now I want to know if Pete, who owns the bar downstairs from us, thinks the earth is hollow, because if he's leading an expedition, I am so there. I thought it was full of nougat. Yeah, and by the way, when did... uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. When was that written? That's a good question. Because this is 1840. I'm starting to think mm. that 
not so science fiction-y as much as it was already being discussed in the general public. Looking Let's it up find right this now. Out. Also in Rotten History on February 10th, 1984. Got a year on it? Let's see. Sorry, I'm just seeing the film versions right now, which are 1959 and 2008. <laughs> that 2008 one was a horror film. Uh, I need to check that out. Oh, the Swedish accent on the or Icelandic accent in the 1950s version. Mm-hmm. Pretty hilarious. All right. Jules Verne published this in on uh, November 25th, 1864. See, that's what I'm saying. How yeah. science fiction is that? He was that's just wild. stealing conspiracy theories. Also in Rotten History on February 10th, 1984, 40 years ago this week, after receiving reports of clan violence, that's with a C, in case you are wondering, after receiving reports of clan violence in northeast Kenya, near that country's border with Somalia, an area where I assume the clan with a K does not exist, the Kenyan government sent troops there to restore order. When the soldiers arrived in the area, which was inhabited mainly by ethnic Somalis, they met with local leaders who directed them toward detaining several thousand men of the Dagudi clan, whom the soldiers marched to the nearby Wagala airstrip in Wajir County. The Dagudi prisoners were kept on the airstrip for an entire week and were denied food and water. Finally, they were all shot to death, and I did not see that coming. At first, the Kenyan government would admit to the killing of only 57 men. Later, it raised that figure to 365, but witnesses and experts later estimated that about 5,000 men were murdered in what has been called the worst human rights violence in Kenya's history. Only in 2011 did Prime Minister Rayla Odinga finally ordered an investigation into the Wagala massacre, and in 2015, the governor of Wajir County announced plans to sue the Kenyan government on behalf of the victims' families. But to the best of my knowledge, that's where the case still stands today. If you have any new information on what has happened with the pursuit of justice in the case of the 1984 Wagala massacre, please email me at chuck at thisishell.com, and if you can find any news on this, we'll share, share it with our listeners and update them. Finally, in Rotten History, on February 10th, 2009, 15 years ago this week, in the first known incident of its kind, two communications satellites, ComSats, collided in Earth orbit, spreading a cloud of debris that immediately became a hazard to other satellites. The two ComSats, one functional, one dead, and both Russian, slammed into each other at about 26,000 miles per hour. Russia was criticized for not having put the dead satellite known as Cosmos 2251, hey, that's our address, into a controlled atmospheric re-entry after it was removed from service. But it turned out that the satellite had no deorbiting capacity and had simply been left in space as a derelict as I've often been left in space. Experts point out that space junk poses an increasing threat to satellites that are used for telecommunications, GPS service, weather forecasting, and military surveillance, as well as scientific research. At high orbital speeds, even a small nut, bolt, or a metal chip can potentially do more damage than a rifle bullet. NASA has reported that the collision of the two Russian satellites created more than a thousand pieces of orbiting junk, one of which passed within 150 meters of the International Space Station in 2012. And just like the mess we have made of Earth, we've already met it, made a mess of outer space too. Now that's Rotten History, and this is how Will, what's happening on the final show of this week. Uh, Bruce E. Levine returns to This Is Hell to talk about his new Counterpunch article, 
Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, the final nail in psychiatry's antidepressant coffin. Bruce is a practicing clinical psychologist. His most recent book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Freethinking, and Radical Enlightenment. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing I Am Your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gap Tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. This is how office hours are happening this week, this Wednesday, as they do nearly every Wednesday. And they always happen at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251. See? Cosmos 2251. 2251 West of On Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. It's supposed to be in the high 50s, maybe even 60 degrees. So look for me out back at the fire pit as always as you can find me almost every wednesday evening during this is hell office hours at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in chicago's west ridge neighborhood we told you so this is hell my demon is on my butt uh. my demon talks to me a profanity like a seller and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>